0: Superhumans, I just got done speaking to one of the most badass women on the planet. She may be just be one of the most badass people on the planet. My guest today on this podcast was an absolute joy to speak to, and I think my jaw was just on the floor the entire time. Her name is Lisa Tamati, and Lisa is an endurance athlete with over 25 years experience racing, well, I was completing races that David Goggins even struggles to finish. She's done bad water. She's done races across the Sahara Desert. She's gone across the Libyan Desert with only a couple liters of water a day. Yeah, she's crazy, but she turned that craziness, that mental toughness into really a very interesting story regarding her mother. So I'm just going to leave it right there. We're going to jump right into the episode because I'm sure your jaw will be on the floor just like mine. The show notes for this one are decodingsuperhuman.com slash Lisa, that's L-I-S-A. Enjoy my conversation with Lisa Tamati. Lisa, the badass, welcome to the show.
1: G'day Boomer, awesome to be on your show, it's such an honor, thanks mate
0: really poor. So, uh, you know, we were connected through mutual friend, Roy, uh, who does a lot of work on, on my show, but also I heard your story and I was like, just shit. I need to get this woman on the show. Like you've done so many amazing things in the endurance world. Mind just giving us a little bit of a recap here?
1: yeah so um, oh yeah, my background is in what they call ultra marathon running, which is uh,
0: can we do let's just define ultra because yeah. I did a marathon and it I you know my story. it was not the most successful thing I've ever done in my life. Um, what do you mean by ultra marathon?
1: Oh, congratulations for a starters for the <laughs> discipline to do a bloody ultra, uh, to, to do a marathon because that takes a lot of uh, dedication. Um, so, ultra marathon is basically anything over the marathon distance, which is 42 Ks in, in New Zealand metrics. Um, so, typically these are races from 50 kilometres, 100 K, 100 miles, 200, 300, and there are even races that go across entire continents. Um, or races like in New York City that go 3,100 miles around a half-mile block. You know, there's, there's different levels of crazy and different types of races. So this is the sort of thing that I've done for a quarter of a century because <laughs> I'm quite old, um, and I've had some amazing experiences. I've run over 70,000 Ks in that time. Done over 2000 Ks in the Sahara. So I've done the Moroccan Sahara twice, the Tunisian, the Arabian desert, the Libyan desert, Niger, Jordan, Gobi desert, uh, Death Valley in the USA a couple of times, different parts of the So area. The,
0: the, let's double click on the Death Valley race because yeah. I think I'm familiar with that one. Yeah. Um, which Death Valley race is it? Or is it so it's
1: the. Is it Bad, bad,
0: bad Water? Is it? Bad
1: Water Ultramarathon. That's the one. And that okay. is an epic race. So, can, you,
0: can you describe that race for us? Because I yeah. know uh, somebody famous who we may or may not mention here has recently not finished that
1: and written a book. Uh, but <laughs> Mr. Goggins. T-
0: let's talk about, yeah, let's talk about Mr. Goggins. But I'll, since you actually finished Badwater, let's get into that.
1: Yeah, so I, yeah, I've done it twice um, now. And this is a 135 mile or 217k race that takes place in Death Valley every year. And there's about 90-odd crazy idiots who sign up for this in the middle of summer. And if anyone knows what Death Valley is, it's the hottest place on Earth. Um, so temperatures get up to, oh, I don't know, in, in Fahrenheit. What is it, about 130, I think, in Fahrenheit? About 50, I think so. 55, 56 um, in Celsius. Um so bloody hot, really hot. Um, mm-hmm. And then you've also got, you're starting below sea level and you've got these two massive mountain passes that you have to get over and at the end you're climbing up Mount Whitney, um, halfway up that. So um, it's, yeah, you got distance, you've got the heat and you've got this, you know, huge amount of m- mountains to climb as well. So it's a pretty epic event.
0: <laughs> wow. Okay, so let's compare and contrast that versus... Running the Sahara, right? Like, I've ridden a camel in the Sahara. Uh, that was difficult enough as it is. It, running on sand doesn't seem to be that easy. Is there, like, an actual trail that they lay out for you, or is it just sort of, like, go goes you may?
1: You just go so every. You might be surprised at how many different types of deserts there are. The Sahara mm-hmm. is a massive place, obviously, and there are you know all sorts of. Some are stony, some are sand dunes, some are you know cliffs and rocks and climbing up things, and uh, so there's everything. So it's very mm-hmm. very different terrain. So you you typically in the races that I've done in the in the Sahara have been what they call multi-day stage races, and these are like usually 250 Ks over seven days is is your sort of average. Um, And these ones are you self-supporting. So you're carrying everything on your backpack except Mm -hmm. your water. So you get given your water every day Um, and you have to have all your food with you. So you're carrying 10, 12, 14 kilos on your back while you're trying to to run. And
0: this is, this is sand,
1: right? And so I, yeah,
0: I've tried to climb dunes much to my dismay uh, in places like Namibia and stuff like that. And it wasn't easy. And you're running, how long was this race?
1: Well, so 250 Ks is sort of your, your typical one. And I've done some nonstop races like Niger, which was 333 kilometers. I actually failed in that one, got to the 222 K mark and had food poisoning. So that was the end of that one. Um, but, yeah, generally, you, 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 are, you are in whatever is coming at you. So it could be foot-deep sand that you're going through. It could be rocky, you know, flat terrain. It could be climbing up mountains. Uh, you're, you're very much um, exposed to extreme conditions. And it's all – and the funny thing is, you know, like I'm not even a good runner. Like, you know, people have this, this uh, conception that you're probably like a, you know, a Paula Radcliffe or something. And I'm not, I'm so not. Um, No genetic ability whatsoever, just a very, very stubborn mind. And with ultramarathons, it's very much about just how hard can you push, how much much suffering can you take, and how much can you overcome the obstacles that come your way and the fear, dealing with fear and, um, you know, because you can be in really scary places alone, um you know there's a, there's a whole lot of things that can happen to you and um so it's managing yourself it's more of a survival thing really than um you know than racing in the normal sense of the word um yeah so
0: Lisa, if you don't mind like because all of this is just so cool to me right like you're you did bad water twice you didn't just do it once you did it twice uh you raced in the sahara you've gone to niger which is a place that i've never even been to before and you've done all these really cool things i want to dive a little bit into like what your training regimen looked like during this and then uh, after that i want to talk about mindset yeah Uh, but your training regimen for because one of my complaints about marathon training is the amount of time
1: that it takes yeah. What
0: does your training regimen look like for something like Badwater or one of these other races?
1: So in the beginning, when I first started out doing this, you know, 25 years ago, I had no idea what I was doing. And so I was doing huge mileage, which was, you know, uh, 150, 200 Ks a week. Um, wow. And I didn't do anything else but run. And that was the completely wrong way to do it. As I mm-hmm. it got me to the finish line when I was younger, and then I started to burn out and just blow up and having yeah. the wall and problems with my hormones and, you know, a whole lot of physiological problems came from that approach. Um, mm-hmm. And then I met my, my uh, coach because, you know, back then I just, it was a pioneering days in the sport too. We didn't even yeah, have really. lights properly, you know, there wasn't all the fancy gear that there is now. And then, I, so about 13 years ago, I met my coach who is now my business partner in our company, our running company. Um, and he chopped my mileage in half. He built in strength training. He built in mobility work daily. Uh, he changed my diet. He changed the supplements that I was on. He basically revolutionized the way I was training, and I'd been really broken at that point. I was, um, and that was just before Death Valley. So he saved my bacon, really, because this was my most important race that I'd done. You know, I was super mm. excited about Death Valley. Um, and I had the best results on that regime. So the mileage was cut in half, you know. So typically I was only running um, 100 kilometers a week, 110, 120, depending on the week. And, you know, you cycle.
0: Which, just to give some perspective, because I know there's a significant amount of the audience that's from the US, 100 kilometers, a marathon is 42. Point yep. something right yeah yep. so you're running multiple marathons per week obviously yep. not all at once but well, this is still a significant amount of mileage right
1: it is but it isn't that much you know considering that you're running then 217 k's or 135 miles in one go you'd think gotcha. that you have to and my mindset at the beginning was that i have to do you know a huge amount of mileage So, I mean, there were, there were weeks and depends on where you are in the program and the build up. So you Mm wouldn't start at, uh, he would have me starting on some weeks at 60, 70 Ks, which me at that stage was like, oh my God, I'm going to be so unfit. And actually what happened is that I actually had time to recover and my body sort of came back online and I, you know, got better and then building in the strength training, Help my body stabilize, you know, because I was very weak in the upper body. I had really strong <laughs> legs, obviously, um, but I, I when you're running, it makes your upper body very flaccid, you know, and you don't have a strong back, and your hips start to get, you know not so strong and and so building in that strength part of the regime was crucial and then building in the mobility so that you had good range of motion your good posture uh so that you're more upright i remember the first race he saw me run was a hundred miler in my local town and i was bent over like a staple at the end of it and he was like oh my god she's got no core you know
0: yeah
1: (laughs) and he you know then built that up and i have a really strong core now um, and all those things are really important pieces of the puzzle. So uh, it's still a big time commitment, um, mm-hmm. but not as big as what it used to be in my early days uh, where mm-hmm. all I did was work and run, <laughs> you know, and you work well, full time. And,
0: and I, I was going to ask, were you working full time or yeah. was this your full time job?
1: No, no. Full time work. Wow. Mm. Wow.
0: Okay. So uh, a, a training regimen like this and, you know, I've done powerlifting competitions. I've done marathons. Well, I've done a marathon and it didn't really do go so well. Um, and I've done a few things in my life and all of them require a certain amount of discipline, but nothing to the extent of like bad water, for instance, let's talk about your mindset because have you just like beaten yourself up so much that you're, you can do anything or how, how did you build this determination? I would love to just get, hear some insights on how that kind of grew over time.
1: I think, um, you know, I know that you're into epigenetics and uh, my epigenetic type is that like I, my, my dominant hormones is adrenaline and, um, <laughs> and dopamine. So I'm very much mission driven uh, by nature and a risk taker by nature and someone who pushes yeah. the limits and often jumps in without any idea of what they're getting into. And then Mm -hmm. just learns to swim along the way you know or learns to run along the way Um, i can relate to
0: that
1: yeah so very much a a dive in and see how it goes sign up in the excitement of the moment and then go oh shit, what was i thinking you know (laughs) um so that's from a personality point of view and i was like that since i was born i think um i remember mum telling me at three you know i just run off and dive into the water when i couldn't swim and things it's just in my nature then I also grew up in a family where physical and mental toughness was a prerequisite to be accepted in the family. So wow. I grew up with uh, a really loving, caring, awesome, amazing mother, and my dad was also an awesome dad, but he was a hard ass, and he he put a lot of pressure on us as, as kids to perform in sport, especially. Um, and I was first born and I wasn't a boy. So I was major disappointment. I think, um, thank goodness. I had two younger brothers to share the load after me, but, um, he would, if he had had it his way, I should have been like a, you know, special forces soldier, a career woman within, you know, two, 10 degrees. And I should have been, you know, an extreme sports person as well. You know, mm-hmm. he's that type of bloke. <laughs> um, and as a child that was tough because I wanted to please my dad as little girls do. And so I did my best and I was very much trying to prove and want to be accepted by my dad, you know, and I was mm-hmm. never quite good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my, my childhood I was a gymnast and I was quite good until I got to puberty and I, you know, grew too tall and too athletic and too, you know, it wasn't the tiny little build you need to be for a gymnast. And so yeah. I was a major disappointment for my dad when I, I pulled out of that at 15 and he thought that I was about to represent my country. And, and I I knew that I wasn't, you know, I I knew that. And that caused a hell of a lot of self-esteem problems. So as a young girl, especially in the gymnastics world, I, I was, dealing with um eating disorders and a very bad self-esteem um considered fat uh you know by my coaches when i was not fat i was just a healthy young girl you know i've heard that
0: in gymnastics in particular quite a bit
1: very it's very much that in ballet it really can be horrific if you're not built that way you know Mm -hmm. now i know i understand epigenetics i'm not built for that Mm -hmm. um so then I tried other things and I just failed and failed, and, and, and then I got into the running and I and I had in my early twenties a boyfriend from Austria who was an extreme athlete and I was attracted to men who were hard asses again because that's what my dad had been I think when I look mm-hmm. back in a psychological point of view with hindsight, um, and so he was never happy and I was never good enough and he would push me to the absolute limits and. We spent years cycling around the world, climbing mountains, you know, and this is where I, I started to learn what I was actually capable of. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot. There wasn't a lot of enjoyment. It was more about trying to please somebody and prove something to someone. Okay. Um, and that relationship lasted five years and ended up, you know, quite an abusive relationship. Um, and my self esteem was even a lower than you know it could possibly be. And then in um, we were doing a crossing of the Libyan desert as a part of a four person expedition. So I wasn't even into operas at this stage, but this was my first major encounter with a desert uh-huh. and in the middle of this. So this was an illegal crossing of the Libyan desert. We've got, this is obviously maybe- a few
0: years ago before Qaddafi this- went bye bye. kind yeah. of
1: thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Long time. We're talking, we're talking 1997 here. I'm very okay. old. <laughs> You're <laughs> and- not
0: very old. Come on. <laughs>
1: I'm certainly not in my head, but, you know, apparently according to my birth date. Um, And so we were in this extreme situation. We had um, only two litres of water a day, which was in those temperatures, you know, insane. And the reason we only had the two litres was we couldn't carry any more than that because we had uh, had to cover 250 odd kilometres. And we had to um, have it all in our backpack because there was no. So, up- hold
0: on. I have to double click on that. Two hundred and fifty kilometers in one day in the Libyan desert. Is that right? No,
1: seven, seven days. Seven time.
0: days. Okay, fine, fine. Okay. Because <laughs> I was going to like one day is, that, that's, that's pretty impossible. Yeah.
1: But, no, that's, okay. That would be impossible. Yeah. Um, so seven days but we had to carry 35 kilo backpacks wow i had five and i only weighed about 40 uh, 59 kilos um so this was more than two you know nearly two-thirds of my body weight sort almost um and so i could i could i couldn't even get up off the ground without the guys putting on my feet and we were covering 45 kilometers a day with these backpacks and only two liters of water and so we were extremely on the edge of what's possible as far as dehydration. Yeah.
0: So is that all salt water at that point? Or like, what you have to have some other things besides just water to keep yourself hydrated, right?
1: No, so you have electrolytes. um, So We had salt tablets, um, but that was about it back then. We didn't have anything fancier than that. We didn't understand anything about potassium and magnesium and all those sort of things. Really, we didn't. We had no idea. Wow. Um, and in the middle of this desert, which we are all suffering dreadfully from the thirst, you know, you can imagine um, the boyfriend has a major domestic with me and leaves me <laughs> and says after the four days of being in the desert, and this has been a rocky hard relationship. And this is the first time we've ever done anything with anyone else. And now, looking at this guy going, you can't treat her like that. And I'm starting to realize this isn't normal. And, you know, he was trying to do a book for the for the expedition, and he wanted to photograph, and he wanted me to help him. And I literally was on the edge of my capabilities; I was unable to do running around, taking, helping him set up photos. Yeah. Um, and and so this came to a head, and on day four, he said, "Right, that's it. The relationship's over. I'm leaving. You guys are too slow. I'm out of here." Wow. And he literally left, left me in the middle of the living desert with the two other guys. <sighs> I didn't know whether he'd survive. I didn't know whether we'd survive. We were on the edge of what was you know, possible. The dehydration was really starting to get to us. So, mm-hmm. you know, sh- body shutting down basically. And to be fair to him, you know, we we were in agony. And yeah. he, he, tempers were short. So anyway, he he left and that was a real crux point in my life where I went, and that's it. I'm not taking this shit any longer. Um and And I realized I had to compartmentalize because I wanted to fall to pieces, you know. Mm -hmm. I wanted to cry and be a mess as you are when you have a breakup of a relationship. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't because I'm in the middle of the desert. I've got to survive. And these two other guys are relying on me to, you know, get my stuff together and get get through. And so I had to learn to really put all that aside and just keep moving. And and the three of us, we we did this, you know, we did it amazingly. I had major problems on day um, six with my body just shutting down and starting to shut down Mm -hmm. i was hoarding the water because i was so terrified of running out of water that i'd actually only been having a liter and a half of the day and my central nervous system was starting to shut down and i was hallucinating i was all over the place anyway long story short we got to the end of that and that changed my life though i it took me two years to physically recover from it i had Mm -hmm. kidney massive kidney problems after that Um, and you know in the aftermath of the psychological stuff to deal with but that experience i loved the desert i actually loved the desert and it took me two years but i was reading in a magazine about this ultra marathon in morocco and Mm -hmm. i thought i could do that because it was touted at that time as the toughest race on earth and i was comparing it to what i'd just done in the libyan desert and i thought i can do this this is the same distance We've only got to carry our food. We don't have to carry our water. We get nine litres of water a day, and there's doctors and there's, you know, aeroplanes and there's people that can save us, and there's 700 runners. And so I, I signed up on that, and that was my very first ultra, and I never looked back. I loved it. And had I you done a marathon
0: to... before that?
1: No. <laughs> so I so I your, first was, your first race yeah. was
0: – your first race was – uh remind me – been- 200, 200 plus kilometer in the desert, Sahara Desert, which again, like I, I've done the Sahara Desert, but on the back of a camel um, yeah. on the Algerian border. But like, <laughs> this is incredible. Wow. Okay, yeah. so essentially you just push yourself to a breaking point and said that nothing will break you ever again.
1: Exactly. And compared to, when you when you push yourself outside your comfort zone and you, you lift your horizon of what you're capable of, yeah. And that's the beautiful thing about this because people often ask me, why the hell would you do that? You know, yeah. like it's obviously not a lot of fun and it's painful and the discipline required and the money, it costs a lot of money to go to these events. You don't get, you know, you don't get paid. You have to usually search for sponsors for a year and, and so on. But the, the, the real value lies in what you learn about yourself and how yeah. you overcome obstacles and the character building side of it and the mental toughness that you get out of it. And this is the, where the real value, it doesn't lie in the value of running from A to B, which is some arbitrary thing that some humans come up with, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's really the journey that you go on on the inside, as they say, you know? And, and it really is, because you you push yourself to places you can't imagine. And when you go beyond those and you're still standing, that gives you strength for life. That wow. gives you an ability to persist and overcome things and to try things and to never be limited again you know mm-hmm. and especially when you do this repeatedly over and over and over again um and there are some downsides to that as well you know there's some post-traumatic stress that's gone on you know yeah. there's some physical damage that I've done to my body um unknowingly because I didn't have all the information you know back then now we know a lot more um so there's downsides of it as well but it stood me really in good stead for for the obstacles and the challenges that I've had to face in my life, which have, have also been, mm-hmm. a, a, you know, numerous, shall we say?
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's um, it's incredible. I I want just like to give a couple people takeaways on this because if you're going to do an event like, let's say you wanted to do an ultra, and After my first marathon, I said, I'll never do one again. And now I'm like, "Mm, maybe. maybe." Uh, If you want to do an ultra, what are kind of what what are three things people should think about first before doing an ultra, Uh, whether it be tips you have on mindset or just how to get themselves into a position where they can make an informed decision on whether or not they're ready? So one of the devices that both Lisa and I love is the V-Lite. And she uses it for intranasal photobiomodulation with her mother. But there's also the effects, and we've had Dr. Lou Lim on the show before, of transcranial as well as intranasal photobiomodulation. I say that one five times fast. That I absolutely love. I use my neuroalpha Alpha every other night, per Dr. Lim's suggestions to help me sleep better. And I must say, it's extremely effective. In fact, right when I put this bike down, I'm going to go and use mine. And so if you want to give that a try, or if you want to get perhaps the NeuroDuo, which also has the NeuroGamma effects, or one of their other devices, head on over to beLight.com and use the code SUPERHUMAN for a nice little discount. And back to an epic discussion with lisa tamatu
1: yeah 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 if, if, if we start get a good coach <laughs> obviously a, a good plug for us because that's what we do is our day job mm-hmm. um but it's it's about having the right information and understanding that your body is capable of so much more than you are able to understand right now
0: mm-hmm. and that
1: goes for everybody and you don't need to be a super fast you don't need to be super talented. You just have to want to do this and be willing to uh, go through this transformation. And mm-hmm. when you have a bad experience, like uh, you you sound like you had a bit of a bad experience at the marathon. That's just a learning curve. You know, that, yeah, exactly. there, that, it's just like, there are there's so many races boomer where I'm not telling you where I failed, you know, where I, you know, absolutely bit the dust and, Uh, failed miserably and I've learned more from those ones than I actually did from the successes and and, you know it's not just a cliche it's real Um, and so understanding so having a good structure is really Mm good you know a good program and having a holistic program that builds in your strength work and your mobility work that works on your nutrition your supplementation and your mindset not just running miles Mm -hmm. all of these things are part of doing an ultra marathon and a marathon In fact um so you you need to have that good and you need to be surrounded by people that are doing this because if you're just surrounded by like 99.9% of the population don't know what the hell an ultra marathon is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you need to be surrounded by people who, who get this, who know the problems that come up, who can guide you through that. And it can also, because people are going kind to of come up to you and go, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? I don't get it. Now, my brothers still say to me, I'd rather poke my eyes out with needles than do what you do. I don't mm-hmm. get it. You know, people don't get it. And so you will have a lot of negativity in your environment possibly. Uh, about you doing this, and then people that believe that's not possible. You know, I just had it we trained a lady recently who just did uh, a two hundred miler. Like mm-hmm. that's a real long way, <laughs> um, and she's a mum of three, and she's not a spelt running, you know, looking elite athlete. She's a full time position, and and, and she, her daughter went to school and said, "My mummy's running a two hundred mile race," and the teacher told the daughter off for lying. You are Yeah, lying. That yeah is it's
0: just, um, I mean, I, I would guess it's possible. I have so many questions there, including like how much time you have to dedicate per day to your training, but uh, wow,
1: not, that's crazy. Not as much as you think. Yeah. No more than you would uh, for an Ironman, you know? Okay. So um, we do it the way we train is that it's a minimum effective dose as far as your mileage is concerned. Yep. So you don't need to be putting in junk miles which was the old way where you just ran and you ran and you ran now you know like we have a lot of our programs let's take 100k for example you're running a 100k event so most of the trainings weeks will be in the 40 to 60 kilometer range Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and then a couple of strength training sessions in the gym or at home with body weight exercises And then daily little mobility workouts, so that's 10 minutes on the foam roller or stretching or yoga or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. So that's not a huge time commitment for a pretty serious race, Yeah. but that will will get you there. That won't get you there to the podium, but that will get you through the race in some good, decent shape, prepared for the actual challenge that you've got Mm ahead. So the, the highest amount of kilometers you'll be doing for an event like this, some my husband's doing one at the moment. We're doing um, for a charity run an 84 K and you know his biggest training run is 40 K. So you don't need to go, you know, and that's once, you know. Um, so it's not horrendous. It's yeah. not horrendous at all. With 10, 10 hours a week, y- you can do that. You can do it.
0: So let's talk, um, because the last time you and I spoke was when I was in Seoul and I got to meet your mom and I want to talk about that transition and how that worked. How did you go from doing all of these ultra marathons around the world to what's going on with your mom, which is, I find, fascinating.
1: Yeah, so this is where these lessons that I've been talking about really come into play. So four Mm. years ago, my mom, who I said is the most amazing, incredible woman, um, had an aneurysm, which is a bleed in the brain, and subsequently a stroke as well. When this happened, they didn't think she'd survive. It was a massive, severe, um, you know, hanging on for dear life situation, was in and out of a coma, four weeks in ICU. Um, we had a medical blunder from the very get-go, an, an emergency where they thought she was having a migraine and ignored it for hours on end took six hours for them to finally do it a, a CT scan and and see that blood clot was right throughout the brain and it took them eighteen hours because she had to be flown somewhere so before they got her into surgery for to take the blood off the brain and get us you know a stent put in um, so all of these medical blunders that happened along the way really made me hyper vigilant when she survived that then I was like i 'm not going to be caught short again because I had not known what to ask for at the very beginning yeah. and I'm going to research the hell out of this, and I'm going to help my mum come back. So she was three weeks in, in and out of a coma, and when she was losing more and more of her brain as that time went on because of what they call vasospasms, which is when the blood and the brain don't mix, and they cause spasms, and you lose different parts of the brain. When she eventually stabilised and woke up, she had basically hardly any higher function so she was um, unable to move anything in a, in a coordinated fashion. She had no spatial awareness, no, no ability to even sit or um, she had no memory. She had no, she had a couple of words. And that was it. Um, and, she, you know, after months in rehab and I was just studying hard out everything I could about brain injury and brain function and how I could get her brain back on track and the, the doctors were telling me, look, she's seventy-four, she's not gonna do anything again, there's no hope, there's massive brain damage. Make her comfortable. And there's one thing I don't do comfortable, you yeah. know. I'm not about comfortable, I'm about overcoming and challenges. And um, so I had a hell of a battle on my hands in the hospital itself where they wanted to just, you know, put her away in a aged care facility after the, the rehabilitation and so on um and be done with it and i was like no i'm going to get i'm she's coming back i'm getting my mum back mm-hmm. and i i started studying now i've done a lot of races at altitude in the himalayas as well yeah and i've worked uh, so with with altitude training so i've had a, a tent at one stage where i slept in it i called a hypoxico tent and it takes a part of yeah. the oxygen out. Um and the reason you do this is to adapt to, to altitude so that when you go there you can hopefully run right mm-hmm. um so i have one of these and i went in this for months in the build-up to a, a 222k race in um, northern india in the himalayas and i went up too fast too, too quickly so it was 6500 meters that i was sleeping at it every night yeah which is about a third of the oxygen level that we normally have or less than a mm-hmm. and I didn't follow the instructions, which was really stupid because I was an impatient, uh, running out of time, got to get there quicker yeah. type of person. Um, so, what happened is I ended up with a hypoxic brain concussion. Wow. And I started to have uh, infections also. When you don't have enough oxygen in the body, the infections start to proliferate and go, over, you know, you start to have real big problems with infections. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was seeing these things in my mum. I was seeing the infections. So, I'd had, he had that experience. And then I was in the hospital, and she had these infections in her mouth and, and other you know places we won't mention. Um, and I, I was thinking, this is a lack of oxygen that's going on here. Yeah is she And she was sleeping 20, 21 hours a day. Um, I think she's got sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, the, the doctors wouldn't listen to me. And I so I, I brought in an out, outside consultant. We did a sleep apnea test. Came back with severe, severe sleep apnea. So she was stopping breathing many hundred times a night. Yeah. Um, and this was, of course, knocking off whatever brain cells she had left mm-hmm. and killing her. Um, and if I hadn't picked that up, then you know I think she'd be long, long gone. Yeah. Um, so we put her on a CPAP machine. So that was my first. Um, win if you like
0: mm-hmm. and then she
1: started to have a little weeny bit more function because she was having the oxygen and then i thought what else can oxygen do and i discovered something called hyperbaric oxygen therapy yeah um which is uh used extensively around the world uh, not not enough but it's, it, it is an amazing therapy that hyperoxygenates the body and can be very very beneficial for brain injury mm-hmm. um but in my country it's not accepted uh, as as um in evidence-based therapy. We have it in our Auckland and Christchurch uh, hospitals, but they only use it for uh, wound healing and gangrene and, and burns and so on. Mm-hmm. So I could not get access to it. So I studied uh, the Dr. Harch's work, who's in America, and he's one of the world's leading experts on it. Uh, read his books, read everything I possibly could about hyperbaric and go. I've got to get her this access. So when I finally came to letting her out of the hospital, and they wanted to put her in a home, and I said, No, I've got to take her home. I'm going to to look after her, and they said, "There's no way you can. 24 hours round the clock. You know, seven days. There's no way you're going to cope as a family." And I believe that, and when she's in her own environment and she knows on some level that she's loved and wanted and, and surrounded by by her things, that this will help her memory. And I felt felt it very very important that I take her home. And I had a real battle with that. <clears throat> and uh, they would not give me the resources, which is just like a caregiver in the morning and in the evening to help with personal cares. Mm-hmm. And so I got my very big brother who's looks like the rock and um, he came with me to the hospital one day and we suddenly got the, res- the resources we needed yeah. um, without saying too much more. And you know, that really makes me angry that people have to go to that sort of a, a level to get help.
0: Absolutely. Anyway,
1: I got her home and I had, I had found a dive company that had one of these hyperbaric chambers who, who was literally down the road, which was just a miracle. And mm-hmm. I went to these people and I said, can I use your chamber? And they said, yes, sign a legal waiver, take full responsibility medically. No doctor would give me sign-off. Um, and so I took responsibility. I signed the legal waiver and we went down there every day and these incredible people gave us this access to this, this mm-hmm. machine mm-hmm. Uh, five days a week for two hours a day with a hyperbaric wow. technique amazing uh, after 33 treatments taking this very frail you know very fragile sick mum putting her on a forklift in a commercial factory into this massive big what looks like an lpg cylinder mm-hmm. <laughs> and people thought i was completely nuts but after 33 sessions there she started to wake up and she started to have little bits of words little bits of memory and started to trying to trying to move her arms and things like this, and I was like, "Oh my God, this is working mm-hmm. and Then the chamber got taken off on a contract, and I lost access to it. so Then I mortgaged the house and I bought a chamber, and I put her through over the next three years, I put her through another two hundred and fifty sessions and as she she started to come back, as she started to come back, I had more to work with, mm-hmm. and so I developed my own protocols and my own therapies. And I had about an eight-hour program a day for, for the past four years. And it covered off everything from functional neurology to things like nootropics, a radical change in diet, um, physiotherapy, of course, for, for hours on end, speech therapy, everything that I could learn. So I just went into full research mode for four years, basically, and I'm still in there. And on this journey, I learned just so much about the human body. And if I, but if I hadn't had that background as an ultramarathon runner, who knew that the mind and the body are capable of what far more than what anybody believes. So when a doctor says to me, there is no hope, your brain, her brain is too old. It will not change. It will not. You know, I found doctors like Dr. Norman Boyd, who said neuroplasticity happens from the cradle to the grave. Yeah. You know, And I found people that told me I could instead of listening to the ones who told me I couldn't. And, and I just persisted. And I, and I had a hell of a lot of pushback from the medical community also from my family and my friends who were just going, why are you torturing your mother every day? Yeah. Why are you putting her through? Because they couldn't see the end goal, the vision that I had. And I had no background in this, but I believed with all my heart and I was desperate because love, you know, when you love someone, you'll pull out all the stops. Yeah. At this point, I stopped running myself, the long-distance stuff, because I had to fully focus on her. And I was still running two businesses as well. So i work all day with her and I'd work all night um, on my businesses and burn myself out completely, but that's another story. Mm-hmm. But now four years later, my mum is completely normal again. She is, um, talks normally, reads, reading, writing, her intellect is, is completely normal. She's at pre-aneurysm levels for all her tests. She has her full driver's licence and she walks a couple of Ks a day. We go to the gym every single day. Um, she's, a, she's my walking miracle. Mm -hmm. you know, um, and that at the age of now 78 years old. And so this story is a culmination of bringing together the fact that we live in a time when we get access to podcasts like this. We can learn from doctors and scientists at the cutting edge of what is out there. We -hmm. don't have to take what the local doctor says is the gospel anymore. And then combine that with the fact that I have a background in pushing the body and the mind to the absolute limit. And you get a good combination, and then I also had the the, the perfect storm in that once my mum started to wake up as to what happened to her, which took about nine or ten months before she had any sort of memory or coherence or any mm-hmm. you know um, consciousness. But well, when she started to wake up, she fought as hard as I did, and that was the key factor because if I had someone that pushed and didn't want to and was lazy and didn't you know wouldn't cooperate and wouldn't go through this you know very arduous routine every day and still does then I wouldn't have been able to do that so the combination of her willingness my background and the time and age that we're living in has meant that we've created a miracle and that she's back to normal now and so I've just written a book
0: wow yeah let's talk about the book When does the book come out
1: the book comes out in March, okay. so March the 11th in New Zealand, and it will be available in America and places like that and, and overseas on Amazon. Um, and it's called Relentless. Fitting um, title. Yeah, cool site. But that's exactly what we needed to be, relentless. Um, and it, it's a story about love and hope and overcoming the odds, and it's a very powerful, and I'm really passionate about getting this book out into the entire world, if I can have my way. Because I want people to have a guiding light, no matter, it doesn't have, you don't have to be going through a brain injury, but it'll it'll help. There's a lot of therapies listed in there and all the things that I did. I know you've done a light, for example, that was one of them, you know, she's still Mm -hmm. got an intranasal infrared thing up her nose every day. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) um, There's a whole raft of therapies that I mentioned and talk about and the resources are in there. But more than that, it's about the, the mindset and the mm-hmm. ability to walk in faith when everybody is telling you no and to walk into the darkness with the belief that you can do it and overcome the odds.
0: This is such a powerful message, Lisa. Um, I can talk to you for hours about this because I, I want to pick apart your training programs and all of this <laughs> stuff. And I'm sure we're going to have another conversation, uh, but let's uh, let's, uh, we need to wrap this up for now, but Lisa, where can people find out more about you?
1: Yeah, I'd love people to reach out to me. Um, my website is lisatamati.com. So that's just uh, Lisa, uh, mm-hmm. dot com is my website. That's the best place. Or you can find me on Instagram and on Facebook. I'm very active, uh, at Lisa Tarmaty. Um mm-hmm. And yeah. I'd love people to reach out to me if you've got any questions around all this so these sort of topics. Or if you need help with running, mm-hmm. um, if you need help with um, uh, y- brain injuries or anything like that, please yeah, reach out to me. I'd love to help.
0: Awesome. There's this North Pole marathon that I've been like eyeing, <laughs> and you know, if I do decide nice. to go ahead with it, I- I'm <laughs> totally gonna reach out to you. But Lisa. <laughs>
1: And I hope I, I, I hope, I, I, hope yeah. I
0: actually didn't just get myself pregnant by mentioning that on the show. But <laughs> um, Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been absolutely incredible. And guys, for the show notes on this one, which will include all of the races, <laughs> the crazy things that Lisa has done, go to decodingsuperhuman.com slash Lisa, L-I-S-A. Lisa, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Boomer. And North Pole's waiting for you, mate. Oh, gosh. <laughs>
0: have a great day everyone okay hopefully i didn't get myself pregnant during that show with the idea of an ultra marathon or another endurance race because i'm still reeling from my experience with a marathon but lisa just does these things for fun it's amazing right and her story about her mom how powerful You guys are going to check out our book, Relentless, which we'll link to the pre-sale or the sale in the show notes. And you're going to find all the show notes at decodingsuperhuman.com slash Lisa. If you enjoyed this conversation, share it with a friend, share it on all the social networks, whether that be the gram, Facebook, Snapchat, if you're still on it, TikTok, whatever it is, share it, tag me, let me know that you're listening. And of course, head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. Thank you all. I appreciate you. Have an epic day and choose health.